Well, you are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I want to address some issues related to provisionism. I haven't done this in a while, but um, I wanted to kind of revisit a podcast or a YouTube clip I was listening to a few months ago um, with our good friend Leighton Flowers. Now, it's interesting, back in June at the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, I met Leighton Flowers at the bookstore, uh, the Lifeway bookstore. He was standing there, and I was standing there, and we kind of turned the corner, and, and we met each other, and it was a good good conversation. It was good to finally meet him in person. Uh, he's taller than I expected. I'm six foot two, and he was a couple inches taller than me, so uh, he's, he's a big guy, but uh, we had a good conversation, and so I consider Leighton a friend, and it was uh, just a cordial time to, to connect in person, but I do want to interact with provisionism's doctrines, their, their understanding. And so this YouTube clip was called Provisionism Rightly Represented. And so I often think it's, it's a good thing to go to the source and find out how they rightly represent their view. And so what Leighton was doing in this uh, video, this YouTube episode, was interacting with Tyler Vela and that's a discussion for a whole other time. Um, Tyler was a friend, and um, a lot of you may know what has happened with him with his deconstruction and his um, abandoning of the Christian faith. Um, I do pray for Tyler, and my heart does go out to him. Um, I have reached out to him personally, and so um, that's a podcast for another time. But this was back uh, probably six months ago where um, Leighton Flowers was interacting with Tyler who was representing the Reform view, and also Roger Olson, a classic Arminian, he was interacting with the Arminian view. And so Leighton was showing how provisionism is different than Calvinism and even different than Arminianism. And so this podcast is going to be more historical. Um, I'm going to be interacting with Baptist confessions and then some of the post-Calvin reformers. And so there's not going to be as much biblical content in this podcast. I'm just giving that to you on the front end. But a lot of you have given me feedback. You like when I go into the history, uh, some of the historical issues, especially related to the creeds and confessions and how um, Baptist thought has changed over time, especially in Southern Baptist circles. And so here's the issue, provisionism, and you can listen to some of my previous podcasts on provisionism. Provisionism basically argues that the gospel appeal itself is sufficient to enable a positive response. There is no need for an internal, supernatural, what they would call extra, extra special grace directly on the soul of an unbeliever to liberate them from bondage to sin and spiritual deadness. And so the issue in the discussion is not, is grace necessary for salvation? Provisionists, Arminians, Calvinists, we all believe that grace, even Catholics, that's, a, that's another, uh, Roman Catholics, that's, a, that's another discussion, but all of us agree that grace is necessary for salvation. The issue is what kind of grace is needed. What's the nature of that grace? Is it merely an assisting grace? Is it prevenient grace? Is it a grace that goes into the heart through the Holy Spirit? Is it merely the outward call of the gospel? Is it irresistible? What is the nature of that grace? And so provisionism 
denies two key reform doctrines. And, and, and again, all the podcasts I've done with provisionism, let's take election out of it because they hold to more of a corporate view of election. But let's just boil down the two big issues related to provisionism. Number one, they deny total inability from birth. They deny moral and spiritual inability that we are born in bondage to sin and that we are morally and spiritually from birth unable to respond positively to the gospel because we are spiritually dead they deny that they now they believe that we are corrupt that we have a propensity to sin but they deny total inability number two they do not see a distinction between the external outward call of the gospel and the internal effectual call going to the elect. They merely see it as the external call that goes out to all people and that external call in and of itself has the sufficient grace necessary to enable a response. Now we as Calvinist and even if you look at the prevenient grace view of Arminians, believe in an internal call. There's just a difference between what the internal call is between an Arminian and a Calvinist. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of interact with a few statements that Leighton Flowers made where I think it's very important. He clearly articulates the provisionist view, rightly represented. And so I have tried really hard over the years. I think it's almost been seven, eight years now I've been interacting with Leighton Flowers and the provisionists. I want to rightly represent their view. And I've tried really hard to understand their view. And it's, it's very important when they give a positive statement of what their view is. But before we do that, let's just go to some texts. Now, again, I said this is going to be a little bit more historical, dealing with um, reform, post-reformers, post-Calvin reformers, and dealing with some Baptist confessions of faith. But let's go to the scriptures first of all. So let's go to the golden chain of redemption. Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is the golden chain of redemption. If you're listening to some of my Wednesday night teachings, we're going through the order of salvation. I spent three weeks on predestination. I spent a week on effectual calling. I just finished up regeneration. Some of the preparation I've been doing on effectual calling and regeneration, I'm not able to bring in on a Wednesday night to teach to my people. So some of that extra work I've been doing, I'm going to bring into this podcast because it's a little bit more scholarly, a little bit more historical than maybe what we would do on a Wednesday night. But those whom he predestined, he also called. Now the question is, what's the nature of that calling? We understand that to be a golden chain where only those who are predestined are called and thus it has to be an internal, effectual call that goes only to those who have been predestined and that call does produce the repentance and faith that a person exercises so that they can be justified because the next link in the chain is those whom he called he also justified. And so it's an internal, effectual calling that goes to those whom God is predestined. Now, I've done a lot of podcasts on total inability. You can go back and listen to those. But I want to show you a couple of texts that deal with the issue of the external call of the gospel and the internal call of the gospel to show you where we in the Reformed tradition get the distinction between the external and the internal call. Because again, provisionists do not see a distinction. Non-reformed don't see a distinction between the internal call and the external call. 
Armenians do, they're, they're, the internal call is just different, but they, they do understand that there has to be an internal call in addition to the external call. So Paul is before the governing authorities. At the end of the book of Acts, he's relaying his salvation experience on the road to Damascus. He's quoting Jesus, what Jesus told him to do. And so Jesus basically said, um, in Acts 26, 17 through 18, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, Paul is being sent to open eyes. Now, here's the question. Because we believe in total depravity, total inability, can Paul possibly open eyes in and of himself and turn people to the power of God from the power of Satan? Paul cannot do this supernatural work, but he does have a part to play in this. And so we go to Paul's teaching on this. So Jesus told him, hey, Paul, I want you to go open eyes because eyes are closed. And so let's see how Paul teaches that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing about this passage of Scripture. You see three key truths taught in each of the three Scriptures. So one truth is taught in verse 4, another truth is taught in verse 5, another truth is taught in verse 6. So, verse 6, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. This is the whole issue of total depravity, total inability. Unbelievers have been blinded by Satan so that they can't see. Now, remember what Jesus told Paul do, go open eyes. Well, Paul can't open eyes because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They can't see the glory of Christ. They can't see their need for Savior. They can't trust in Jesus. They are totally unable. So what does Paul do? Well, verse 5, Paul says, We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We preach. The gospel must be proclaimed to those who are blinded, to those who are dead in sin. Now, this is the external call. The gospel call goes out to those who are dead in sin, those who are blinded. It's the external call of the gospel. Paul doesn't know who the elect are and who the unelect are. He preaches indiscriminately to all people, and he preaches Christ crucified. But then the first thing, that you, the third thing that we see is that God supernaturally shines the light of the gospel in the hearts of the elect. That's a, that's a very important thing. God shines in their hearts. God does an internal work in their hearts. God supernaturally opens their eyes. That's the internal call. So the external call is Paul preaching the gospel outwardly, the gospel appeal, if you will, that the provisionist would say. But in addition to the gospel appeal, there has to be the supernatural work in addition to the gospel appeal coming into the heart of one who's blinded and and. Paul reckons that or Paul likens that to the idea of the first day of creation where God said, let there be light. Because we're in spiritual darkness, God has to shine that light in the heart. 
So there has to be a direct work in the heart of one who is blinded and in bondage to sin. So Paul preaches the external call of the gospel. The external call goes out, but God does an internal, effectual work in the hearts of the elect, those whom he's predestined, he calls, bringing them all the way to faith. So let's look at another passage of Scripture, Acts 16, 14. Paul goes to Philippi, goes down by the river. Some ladies are worshiping. They're Jewish proselytes. And one of the women down there was named Lydia. And so in Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia, From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now again, in this passage, you see the external call and the internal call. Again, we're saying in in our Reformed understanding of the Scriptures, we see two calls. The external call, the gospel appeal, the message of the gospel going out, but in addition to that, an internal effectual call. Remember, provisionists just believe in the external call only. They don't believe that there needs to be. And we'll listen to Leighton's words here in just a moment when he explains that. So what happens? Well, Paul is preaching to these women because it says, a seller of purple goods, Lydia, she heard. One of, one of us, one who heard us was a woman. So she heard the external gospel call. She was listening to Paul preaching. She heard the external call. Now, she was listening, and she understood maybe the facts of what Paul was teaching, but notice what Luke says. He says, in addition to her hearing, notice the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. So she was hearing the external call, but God had to do an internal call, effectually opening her heart eyes opening her heart so that she would pay attention so that she would truly hear so that she would truly come to faith in christ and so there was an external call of the gospel appeal where lydia heard it but there was an internal call where the lord opened her heart she didn't open her heart the lord opened her heart it was a supernatural effectual calling now again provisionists deny total inability So they don't really see a need. It makes sense logically in their system. If there's no total inability, if there's no spiritual deadness that renders a person unable to come or unable to respond, there really is no need for an internal effectual call. There's there's really no need for irresistible grace because all that the sinner needs is the external gospel call, the gospel appeal. That is sufficient to enable a positive response. Now, as we get to Leighton's video, He's going to interact with Roger Olson. And this is kind of the information we're going to be looking at. And so Roger Olson is a traditional, historic, classic Arminian. And he's probably one of the most cogent ones around now. He's written a book on understanding Arminianism. And um, he he pretty much defines and articulates the classic Arminian view. Not the semi-Pelagian view, but an actual classic Arminian view. And here's the issue. Classic Arminians and Calvinists both start at the same place. We both start with an understanding of total depravity and total inability. So a classic Arminian understands that their spiritual deadness, that people are in bondage to sin, that there needs to be some type of internal call or internal grace that operates directly on the heart to do something. And so there's a distinction then. In Arminianism, that grace is prevenient, meaning it does come before, 
but it is an internal grace, but it's more of an assisting grace. It's an enabling grace. And that grace goes to all people. It doesn't just go to the elect. It goes to all people. And that grace can be resisted or that grace can be cooperated with. But it is a grace that's more than just the gospel appeal. It's more than just the external gospel appeal. There's an internal work of the Spirit, but it's not effectual. It's assisting. It's enabling, but it can be resisted. And of course, in Calvinism, the, the grace is sovereign, the grace is effectual, and it only comes to the elect, guaranteeing that we will come to faith in Christ. So let's listen to Leighton's words, and I'm going to interact with some of his statements, and then we're going to kind of go down through a history of Baptist confessions and kind of see where provisionism gets their theology, because that's always a good question. Where do they get this? Uh, what's, what's historically been the, the view of Southern Baptists, at least, and how has provisionism come to understand the way that they understand these things? So this is a YouTube clip called Provisionism Rightly Represented. And again, he interacts with Calvinists at that time, Tyler Vela and Arminian Roger Olson, and shows how provisionism is different. So let's just listen to kind of him set this up. First, I write, we all agree the initiative in salvation is God's. So everybody catch that. So you theology geeks, you're really trying to, you're, those of you who are watching this, um, I want you to understand our position. Even if you're a Calvinist, you may not agree with this. I just want you to get what provisionism is. Okay, that, that's my goal here. Um, we, we, God is the initiator, not man. The question is, what are the means by which God initiates, right? And are they sufficient? Okay, that's, that's the bigger issue, not whether he's the initiator or not, but how he initiates and are the means that he chooses to initiate Sufficient Are the car, the boat, and the helicopter actually sufficient means by which the person could be saved by the flood or not? Or does there need to be some supernatural something that happens that causes the person to want to accept the, the car, the boat, and the helicopter? Uh, and that's, that's where we would. Okay, so he kind of sets that up and just talks about a little bit how that we, we do agree that there needs to be grace and that it's not the question of whether grace is needed, but it's the nature of the grace. The same thing I argued. Not that is grace necessary, it's what's the nature of the grace. And so at least Leighton understands the argument. The argument is we're not arguing whether or not you need grace, whether it's even provenient grace. The question is what's the nature of the grace? And so that's the, that's the rub, that's the distinction between the views. What's the nature of the grace? Okay, let's keep listening. So I write, we disagree as to the means and the sufficiency of God's initiative, okay? So the means, i.e. the proclamation of the gospel by Holy Spirit-inspired authors, okay, are they sufficient? In other words, are they enough for a person to be able to respond willingly or positively to those means, yes or no? That's the big debate. So none of us meet Dr. Olson's definition of semi-Pelagianism, which, by the way, he actually agrees with, as you'll see here in a little bit. Second, the term prevenient grace probably needs to be defined in more specific terms so as to draw out the distinction between us, because I would argue that the gracious gospel, along with all of God's self-revelatory means, would be considered enabling, okay, and assisting grace that goes before conversion. I would also consider anything that the Holy Spirit does to ensure these means are brought to pass a supernatural and special work of the Holy Spirit. So this is the same thing I was arguing against Tyler, is that he keeps, he keeps using the word supernatural and special in the exact same way that Roger Olson does. 
But I would also say that what we believe that God has done is supernatural. And yes, we would even call it special. But it, in other words, it's super supernatural. It's super special, okay? So it's, it's above and beyond the already supernatural special work he did in inspiring the gospel and bringing the cross uh, to fruition and all that we know about what's happened in the Bible. That's supernatural and special, but there needs to be an extra supernatural, extra special work that causes now the very ontological nature of man to change so that they can believe that supernatural and special work. Make, making sense? Okay. I'm hoping, just hoping you understand it. Okay. Now notice that he does talk about how provisionists need provenient grace, and then he does define it as supernatural and special. And so his understanding of the gospel appeal is that it is supernatural. It is special because it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's Holy Spirit inspired. But notice again here, there is no mention of a direct grace inwardly to the soul either in an Arminian view to give prevenient assisting grace or in the Calvinistic view to, to be effectual to overcome deadness. So again, this understanding of his like supernatural grace, special grace, he understands the nature of the grace being the gospel appeal. The external call alone is gracious. And not only is the external call alone gracious, but it is sufficient. So again, there's no need for an internal work of grace directly on the soul. Okay, let's listen again as he continues. I go on. Inspiring, preserving, and dispersing the gospel throughout the world by the Holy Spirit and dwelled bride of Christ is a supernatural and special work of the Holy Spirit. Is it not? If it is, then the burden is on Dr. Olson and other Arminians and Calvinists for that matter to demonstrate that that work in and of itself is insufficient to accomplish the purpose for which the Bible says itself says it was sent to accomplish, as we see in John 20, 31. This is the verse we quote quite regularly, saying, these things were written, speaking about the truth of the gospel and all of the work of Christ. These things were written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's by hearing and understanding and, and seeing these things that you may believe it. How will they believe without a preacher implies that with a preacher they may believe. That's the implication of that question. And there has to be, I think, a clear didactic text that teaches that mankind can't by, by nature, but by the way in which they were created with a conscience, really understand divinely wrought truth. And I think that's a high, high burden for, for both Calvinists and classical Arminians to, to, uh, to defend. Okay, here he quotes Romans chapter 10. How can they call upon him whom they've not heard and they need preachers and preachers are sent? And, and, and so what's the assumption? Did you notice, did you notice the assumption? He, he brings the assumption that if a preacher comes with the message to a hearer, the hearer automatically has the ability to respond to the preaching of the word. Now we don't deny that the necessity of the word needs to be preached. That's not the issue. We agree with him. How can they hear unless they've heard? So yes, the external call of the gospel needs to go forth from the mouth of a preacher. The external call. Uh, a sinner needs to hear it like Lydia heard Paul preaching. You need to be able to hear the gospel appeal. You need to be able to hear the, the gospel message. But in addition to that, there needs to be an internal effectual call given to those whom God has predestined. And so, again, when you deny total inability, the logical inference is that you have the ability to hear when the gospel comes to you. 
You just have that ability. What you, what you lacked before was you didn't know what the message was. Now that you know what the message is because a preacher, preacher has brought it to you, you have the ability to respond positively. Now, in this last section, it's a little bit longer. He's going to really define the key point. So he's going to really unpack it. And so this is really kind of his most important statement. So again, he's interacting with Roger Olson here, the classic Arminian. So let's listen to what he says. I write this. And the Arminian must show us in Scripture, not merely the historical writings of Arminius, where it plainly says that an extra or additional supernatural, supernatural special work of grace must accompany and or precede the gracious revelation of the gospel appeal and other means that, that God may use. I write this, some argue that the gospel is not sufficient to enable the lost to believe without a work of the Holy Spirit. I argue the gospel is always sufficient to enable the lost to believe because it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now let that that quote just sink in for a moment and try to understand where we're coming from here. Okay, Some argue that the, that the work of the, the, the gospel being proclaimed and the work of the Holy Spirit are kind of like two totally separate things. And so the work of the gospel is one thing, and then the work of the Holy Spirit is another thing, and therefore the work of the Holy Spirit has to somehow accomplish or has to somehow accompany the work of the gospel in order to make it a sufficient work. And what what I'm saying is, no, the work of the gospel itself is a work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is sufficient by definition of it being from the Spirit, okay? And therefore, whatever the the proclamation of the gospel accomplishes, who do I give credit for its, its work to? The one who wrote it, okay? even though he might have done it through human means, like a prophet like Isaiah or a apostle like Paul, I still give credit ultimately to the Holy Spirit, even though he may have used a human means by which to proclaim that truth. Does that make sense? All right. Dr. Olson, Olson speaks of a special work of the Holy Spirit, freeing the will of the sinner, which is otherwise bound to sin and unbelief. Notice his presumption that bondage to sin is equal to being unable to believe in God, okay? Now notice that that's the same presumption, by the way, that Calvinists think. If I'm in bondage to sin, therefore I can't believe in the one who came to set me free from my bondage. And that is a non sequitur. Know what a non sequitur is? You can look it up on Google. It's when you are, are, are ultimately what a non sequitur is, is when your conclusion is not based or it does not flow from the argument. And it doesn't flow to say that someone's in bondage to something, therefore makes them incapable of confessing their bondage and accepting the help of the one who has come to free them. And that's exactly what Olson seems to be doing, at least initially in this article. So there you have it. He's interacting with Arminianism. He basically um, unpacks the whole idea that they deny total inability and that the gospel appeal alone or what we would call the external call, is sufficient. Again, let me make the distinction. Arminians believe their external call is necessary. Calvinists believe the external call is necessary. But in addition to the external call, there needs to be an internal call. For the Arminian, the internal call is an assisting, enabling type of grace. It goes directly into the heart, but it can be resisted, and it goes to all people. Again, in Reformed theology, There needs to be an internal call, but that internal call is effectual. It actually produces repentance and faith. It actually brings about regeneration. It actually liberates the will that's been in bondage because of spiritual deadness and moral and spiritual inability and brings only the elect 
Only those whom God has predestined all the way to faith in Christ. Now, while I am thankful that the provisionists have given a clear understanding here of what they believe and what they hold to, one of the issues I have with provisionism is that there really is no clear confessional statement that basically they hold to that clearly defines this historically. Oftentimes they take a lot of verses out of context or they take passages out of isolation and just kind of build this theology. And so there really is no confession, Baptist confession of faith historically that articulates provisionism. In fact, I would argue that no Baptist or even Southern Baptist confession or statement of faith presents the provisionist view of enabling grace being only the outward gospel appeal. So if this is provisionism rightly represented and the gospel appeal alone is sufficient to enable a positive response, we have to ask the question, where did that come from? Because historically that has not been the view of Southern Baptist especially. And so I went on a little trajectory to to find out, now where did this theology come from, provisionism? They used to call themselves traditional Southern Baptists. And so it's important to go back you know, 2012 was the traditional statement, and, and, and I want to help us understand how this theology is relatively new in Southern Baptist life, and it probably would be a good way to call it traditionalist if you're looking at kind of the midpoint of the 20th century. So, I would say, and you can listen to a podcast maybe five or six years ago where I talked about E.Y. Mullins and Herschel Hobbs and, and kind of some things like that. I don't remember what the name of the podcast is, but I think under the influence of E.Y. Mullins. So E.Y. Mullins was the president of Southern Seminary in like the 1920s through like the mid-1930s. I think it was under his influence and then the trajectory that he set and other SBC theologians that the core tenets of Reformed theology basically evaporated from convention life in the 20th century. It was almost like we want to abandon Calvinism at all cost among the key leading theologians at all the Southern Baptist seminaries. So the question is, what is the confession of the provisionists? Now, I know Adam Harwood has just come out with a brand new systematic theology, but my question is, Leighton Flowers is a Southern Baptist, and I think that his confession of faith is the 1963 Is it the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message? Is it the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? What is the confession of faith? What is the doctrinal statement that the provisionists hold to that they would agree with? Now again, a doctrinal statement, a confession of faith is not equal with Scripture, but confessions of faith are helpful because they articulate what a consensus of a group of people have understood the Bible to teach And it has stood the test of time over centuries, or maybe over decades, if we're talking Southern Baptist confessions of faith. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the 1689, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. This was the first major confession of faith among particular Baptists, and pretty much has stood the test of time. And so in chapter 10, on effectual calling, in God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit, those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually. 
and saving leads to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills by his almighty power, turns them to good, and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Again, outward call, inward call. The inward call is effectual. It goes directly to changing the heart, the mind, the will, and effectually draws those who have been predestined to faith in Christ where they come willingly. Paragraph 2, this effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those called. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than which raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So the second paragraph goes into more detail about this internal, powerful work that has to happen because we are dead in sins. The outward gospel call is not enough. The mere gospel call is not sufficient enough to enable a positive response. There needs to be regeneration. There needs to be an effectual call that goes deep within the heart to raise those who are spiritually dead to spiritually li- spiritual life. So that's the 1689. Okay, let's move forward in time to the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, 1833. This is a Northern Baptist Confession of Faith in the 1800s. This is formed before the Southern Baptist Convention even came into being in 1845. But in the mid-1800s, this was kind of the Confession of Faith that bound at least the Northern Baptists together and it flows a little bit from the Philadelphia Confession, which is basically almost like the Second London Baptist, 1689. But let's, let's talk about the grace of regeneration and the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit, in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel, and that its proper evidence appears to in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. Two things about this confession. Number one, there has to be the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth. So it does see word and spirit. It does say there has to be the the divine truth presented the outward call of the gospel, but in connection with that, there has to be the power of the Holy Spirit bringing about this effectual regeneration. And then what happens? What's the result of regeneration? Well, it says its proper evidences are the holy fruits of repentance and faith. So clearly, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith teaches that regeneration precedes or comes before repentance and faith. Okay, let's go to the abstract of principles. This is James Boyce, The Abstract of Principles, 1858. This is from Southern Seminary and its founding documents and what the seminary professors at Southern Seminary today have to sign. So this is now we're moving into Southern Baptist, basically the first Southern Baptist systematic theology or abstract of principles from James Boyce. And listen to what it says about regeneration. Regeneration is a change of heart 
wrought by the Holy Spirit, who quickeneth the dead in trespasses and sins, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the word of God, renewing their whole nature so that they love and practice holiness. It is a work of God's free and special grace alone. Now this is kind of a combination of the 1689 and the New Hampshire Confession. It's shorter, it's not as comprehensive, but it does teach that there has to be an enlightening of the mind, there has to be a renewing of the whole nature, it's effectual, it's special grace, and so even in the abstract of principles, we're still talking about an outward call and an inward effectual call. Now, let's get to the Baptist Faith and Message, 1925. Here's where it gets real interesting. E.Y. Mullins was the president of Southern Seminary. He was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Under his committee leadership, they drafted the first unified doctrinal statement of Southern Baptist, which is called the Baptist Faith and Message, 1925. Now, here's what you need to know about that. It was based heavily on the New Hampshire Confession. So, the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message is Calvinistic light. Okay, so it's not the 1689... It's not the abstract of principles. It's based upon the New Hampshire Confession, which is a little bit modified Calvinism. Not full-blown Reformed Calvinism, but a modified Calvinism. And so E.Y. Mullins became a modified Calvinist. He wanted to distance Southern Seminary and the Southern Baptist Convention away from Calvinistic roots. And, and a lot of the, the, the influence upon E.Y. Mullins was he had a lot of interaction with some of the Ivy League schools in New England. He was influenced by German scholasticism. And so not that he was a liberal or a heretic or anything like that. It's just that his understanding of higher criticism and understanding of anthropology was really influenced by German scholasticism along with like Princeton and Yale and Harvard and some of those Ivy League schools to where he modified the Calvinism. And so here's what he wrote. Well, let me give you a quote from Dr. Moeller. So Al Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, wrote a really good piece back in the 90s on the life of E.Y. Mullins. And this is from one of those articles that um, Al Moeller uh, wrote. And it said this. Al Moeller writes, He affirmed that the gospel, quote, is efficacious with some and not efficacious with others because God's grace is operative in the one case beyond the degree of its action in the other. So there is some semblance of efficacious grace that Dr. Moeller quotes there. But if you go into actual Mullins' writing, so E.Y. Mullins wrote the Axioms of Religion. This was kind of his textbook. This, was, this kind of set the stage for Southern Baptist theology in the 20th century. E.Y. Mullins' Axioms of Religion. And here's what he writes, quote, God's grace is not irresistible as a physical force, is irresistible. Grace is moral and spiritual. A person's decision to believe the gospel is initiated by God, but in such a way that the choice remains a free, self-determined act. Does that not sound like what Leighton Flowers just said earlier? The gospel is grace. God initiates. It is a prevenient grace that comes before but ultimately, the choice is free for you to respond to that gospel appeal, that gracious gospel appeal. So you're starting to see in E.Y. Mullins this shift away from an effectual, irresistible call to more of 
a modified view of that. So let's read what the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message says about regeneration because it's fascinating because it changes the language of the New Hampshire Confession. They, they built most of the 1925 on the New Hampshire Confession, but when it gets to regeneration, E.Y. Mullins changes the language, and so I want you to listen to what the 1925 BFM says on regeneration. It says this, regeneration, or the new birth, is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit, whereby we become partakers of the divine nature, and a holy disposition is given, leading to the love and practices of righteousness. It is a work of God's free grace. Now listen to this. This is the change. It is a work of God's free grace conditioned upon faith in Christ and made manifest by the fruit which we bring forth to the glory of God. Did you notice the change in wording from the New Hampshire Confession? It is God's free grace conditioned upon faith in Christ. This is a major shift. This is a major shift. It, it, hopefully you can see the major shift. What have all the confessions taught up to this point? It is a work of grace effectually given to those whom God has chosen that results in the evidence of repentance and faith as the fruits of regeneration. In other words, all the confessions up to this point have taught that regeneration precedes faith. But here E.Y. Mullen says regeneration is conditioned upon faith. In other words, you use your libertarian free will to believe the gospel and then upon that condition being met, God regenerates you. So this is a major change. This is a shift towards libertarian free will being the cause or the condition of the new birth. A move away from internal, effectual, irresistible grace. And so what I think happened was Mullins transitioned SBC scholarship away from Calvinism pretty quickly. And so leading theologians in the 20th century began refuting effectual calling, refuting regeneration preceding faith, and elevating libertarian free will. And so what ended up happening was the leading theologians of the 20th century began to move away from the confessions. So let me give you some examples of some of these leading theologians of the 20th century and how this move away from Reformed theology and SBC life led up to provisionism. You can see the trajectory. I'm going to show you the trajectory. I've just shown you that from 1689 to New Hampshire to abstracted principles to the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message, there's a major shift in the theology. So let's see what some of these leading scholars. So Walter Thomas Connor, 1877 to 1952. He was a professor at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth from 1910 to 1948. So he's a contemporary of E.Y. Mullins at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And so listen to what Connor says. And this is in his Christian doctrine textbook. So he wrote a systematic theology. Connor explains this, quote, God, quote, has provided salvation for every man in Christ. He gives him the invitation. He brings influences to bear on him into the way of life. All this is grace. If in spite of these things, the sinner will not some, he has nobody to blame, or not come, he has nobody to blame but himself. As long as he is unwilling to receive the grace that God offers him, 
He cannot complain because God does not give him more grace. If he wants to come, he can come. The difficulty is on his part, not God's. Now, isn't that provisionism? Articulated very clearly from Walter Thomas Connor. God takes the initiative. God brings influences to bear. This is grace. The gospel appeal is grace. It is sufficient. In spite of all these things that God is offering, some sinners come and some sinners don't. And the reason being is not the nature of the gospel appeal. That's sufficient. The issue is in the sinner himself. He can choose to accept it or he can choose to reject it. Again, it's based upon libertarian free will. God provides salvation for every man in Christ. That's provisionism right there. Walter Thomas Connor. So we're talking in the late 40s-ish, mid-40s, you start to see what I would call provisionism emerge among Southern Baptist theologians. Okay, let's talk about Dale Moody. He was born in 1915 and died in 1992. And so he was also a professor at Southern Seminary. So he came a little bit after E.Y. Mullins. He was a professor at Southern Seminary from 1944 to 1980. So he's there during the time of the the liberal drift. Um, And then you can talk a lot about Dale Moody and some of his theology, but listen to this. He denies irresistible grace. Here's what he writes. And he writes this in The Word of Truth, a summary of Christian doctrine based upon biblical revelation that came out in 1981 after his death. So here's what he writes. Quote, When calling is considered in the New Testament writings... Free from the creeds of Calvinism, there is no need for the refined distinctions between external call and general revelation and the preaching of the gospel in an effectual, irresistible call. There is only one call from God in general revelation and in the preaching of the special revelation of Scripture. And whenever man hears the call, it can be made effectual when there is the response of repentance and faith. Is that not provisionism right there? There is no external call, internal call distinction. It's all the external call. And that comes in preaching the scriptures. And whenever man hears that call, it's made effectual when he repents and he believes. So the call is effectual based upon your faith. So when you repent and believe, when you use your libertarian free will, when you heed the call, and all that's necessary is the external call of the gospel, then it becomes effectual in the sense that you, you use your free will to, to receive it. So you see Walter Thomas Connor and Dale Moody, two leading theologians coming after E.Y. Mullins that have basically shifted the goalposts totally away from Calvinism to what we would nowadays call provisionism. Again, it's not Arminianism because they deny any type of internal prevenient grace that comes upon the soul, deep in the soul. They've just basically said, we're not going to make a distinction between an external call and an internal call. It's only now the external call, and that is sufficient. Now, you go to Herschel Hobbes. I've dealt with him. Herschel Hobbes kind of believes the same thing. Roy T. Edgman, he wrote a book in the late 80s, and I, I think I read this when I was in high school, The Doctrines Baptists Believe. So Herschel Hobbes, Roy Edgman, Convention Press, all the theologians that were popular in SBC life emerged from this stream of E.Y. Mullins, Herschel Hobbes, Dale Moody, Walter Thomas Connor. It moved into a non-Calvinistic, not Arminian, but more this provisionistic, traditionalistic theology. Now, let's go to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. 
which is the most current document that holds Southern Baptists together. And it's, the article on regeneration is almost exactly the same as the 1963. So something happened between the 1925 to the 1963 under Herschel Hobbes' leadership, and I'm not exactly sure why. If somebody can help me find out why they changed the wording back more towards the New Hampshire. They moved back more towards the New Hampshire. They moved back more towards the abstracted principles as opposed to going using the wording that the 1925 has. But here's what the most current Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and it's the same in the 1963, which I assume is what Leighton Flowers and others hold to. Here's what it says. Regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Jesus Christ. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Now this is kind of a um, politically correct way of wording the whole issue of regeneration, but I want you to notice it's a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin. Okay, so there is the external gospel call, the conviction of sin, the external gospel call, but it is a change of heart, and it's wrought by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit works more than just the external call. There's an internal rotting. Or there's an internal working of the Holy Spirit. And what, what happens? When you are regenerated, when this change of heart happens, what do you do? You respond in repentance and faith. So the Baptist faith and message right now clearly teaches that regeneration precedes faith. Now, they may not have intended it that way, but the, the grammar that they use to which a sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus, it means that the heart was changed first by the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that heart being changed, then you repent and believe. That's regeneration preceding faith. So interesting, the framers of the 1963 under Herschel Hobbes and the framers of the 2000 versions of the Baptist Faith and Message changed the wording from the 1925 version. So the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, the New Hampshire Confession, the Abstract of Principles, and the 1963 and the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message all affirm that regeneration comes before faith and that God does an internal work to change the heart so that sinners can believe. The only derivation is the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message where E.Y. Mullins strays away from Calvinistic theology to put faith before regeneration. And that shift was monumental because then it moved all the theologians towards a distinction between the external call and the internal call to where we have today provisionism. So if you want to know where provisionism came from, it, it is probably a good thing to say that when they used to argue that they're the traditionalist, not traditionalist in the sense of going all the way back to the beginning, but traditionalist in the sense of if you take about 1948 or 1950, that's how far they can trace back their theology. Now, here's where I'm going to get into a little bit of trouble. Because this view of provisionism historically can be seen as semi-Pelagian. Now, I did an extensive podcast on that a few months ago, Is Provisionism Semi-Pelagianism? You can go back and listen to that. But I do want you to understand 
that this whole idea of a distinction or not having a distinction between the gospel external call and the supernatural internal call was dealt with by his historic theologians. And historic theologians in the Reformed tradition called that view semi-Pelagianism. So if you just said the mere gospel appeal was sufficient to enable a positive response, historic Reformed theologians, whether you like it or not, called it semi-Pelagianism. So as I was doing preparation for teaching the doctrine of regeneration, effectual calling for my Wednesday night study, I spent some time in Francis Turretin. Um, a lot of people don't read Turretin. He's, he's a little deep. Um, his Institutes of Elenctic Theology. Now, that's a kind of a strange name. What's Elenctic Theology? Well, that word Elenctic means a systematic refutation or cross-examination. So Turretin is writing a refutation to Roman Catholics, to um, Arminians, to semi-Pelagians. He's giving forth the reform view of theology. And so Turretin was of Italian descent. He was born in Geneva, Switzerland, and he was uh, one of the successors of Theodore Beza. Now, Theodore Beza was the successor of Calvin. Turretin was the successor of Beza, and so he taught at the University of Geneva um, pretty much in 1653 to 1687, and so in the, in the 1650s to 1680s. And so he interacts with semi-Pelagianism and defines it in much the same way that provisionists define their theology of the gospel appeal. So let me just give you some quotes from Turretin and see if you understand how his refutation of semi-Pelagianism in his day would be the same refutations we would use against provisionists in our day. So let's listen to Turretin. He says this, quote, Although the spirit in effectual calling does not act without the word, still does not act only immediately through the word, but he also acts immediately with the word on the soul, so that the calling necessarily produces its effect. So what's he saying there is there has to be the word, the external call, but not only just the external call that's what we would call mediated through a messenger, but there has to be what's called the immediate or the internal, or the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit directly on the soul to bring about the effectual call. He also says this, But whatever may be its efficacy, still it is not sufficient. Now remember, we're talking about sufficiency of the grace here. This grace is not sufficient without the immediate operation of the Spirit. Nor can the Word, proposed with whatever evidence and opportunity and clothed with whatever circumstances and supports, ever produce that effect unless the secret, inexpressible, and hyperphysical operation of the Spirit attends to the effect the soul immediately and turn it by its omnipotent power. So he just basically argues exactly against what we heard earlier from Leighton Fowers. He says that word, even though it's effective, even though it can be presented with evidences and you can present the word, it's not sufficient without the direct work, the secret supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on the soul that's effectual, that actually changes a sinner's nature. He also says this, the Holy Spirit works in two ways, both in the word and in the heart. 
In the word as the objective cause, in the heart as the efficient cause of faith. In the word acting morally by the revelation of the object and persuasion, in the heart working efficaciously and hyperphysically by an infusion of new life, the creation of a new heart. Again, this is just arguing there's the external gospel appeal. That's the objective word of God. The Holy Spirit is doing that. And as Leighton Flowers would say, that is the grace. That alone is the grace. That's the sufficient grace. That is the supernatural grace, the external gospel appeal. But Turretson says, no, there's also the internal heart work. Not just outward persuasion through the external call, but there has to be that efficacious or effectual working of the Holy Spirit in the, the heart of a lost person. He goes on to say this. Who could believe that the dead can be raised by the sole proposition of the word, which acts only morally and objectively? Okay, so here's his argument. If the word of God is preached, and it's morally and objectively given to a sinner, how can that alone, that preached word, raise the dead? That's his question. He goes on to say, Who does not acknowledge the necessity of some omnipotent grace to infuse new life into him and new powers for believing and working and for causing vision in the blind and the exercise of life in a dead man? A simple proposition of the gospel is not sufficient. But there is required, first of all, the restoration of the visual faculty, which is corrupted, and the renewal of life extinguished by death. So for the spiritual vision of faith, a revelation of the doctrine in the word is not sufficient unless the corrupt faculty is cured within and the Lord works to cause the sinner to receive the truth. Nor is it sufficient for the resurrection of the dead man to excite him as if buried in a deep sleep, by a loud cry, unless with the external voice and internal and almighty power is co-joined, which can restore life to him. That's a long quote, but that quote by Turretin in refuting the semi-Pelagians of his day is the same refutation given to provisionists today about just the mere gospel appeal being sufficient. He says this, And thus we must come to this, either to deny with Pelagius the total corruption of our faculties and their omnipotence for good, so that the soul can act on the word by its own strength to the acknowledgement of truth, or to acknowledge the necessity of an immediate and effectual grace by which it causes the will to be disposed to the reception of the truth. Notice that he actually calls that Pelagianism. That basically when the gospel appeal is given, you can acknowledge that truth. There's no need for what he would call an immediate or direct work of the Spirit on the heart. He actually calls that Pelagianism. He goes on to say, The scripture sufficiently testifies that our original corruption consists not in mere prejudices and false ideas, but in deep, depraved habits and the general disorder of our mind, will, and emotions and in the total and highest propensity of the soul to evil born in all mortals, which the word, with whatever great evidence presented, never could change unless the heart-turning power of the Spirit intervenes and creates and reforms the heart anew. So again, 
He's basically saying, no matter how much persuasion, no matter how much gospel appeal you give, the word alone can never change the heart unless there comes along an internal work of the Spirit that's effectual. Now again, Leighton Flowers and Provisionists would say, the supernatural grace is the gospel appeal. The supernatural power is the presentation of the gospel. That in and of itself is necessary because it is supernatural. It is special. There is no need for an extra, extra special work of grace. And we say, yes, there is. There needs to be both. There's the external call of the gospel, and it is spiritual. It is supernatural. It is the word of God. But there also has to be an internal work of the spirit immediately upon the heart because we are in deadness to sin. Now, let me just give you a few other quotes from some other reformers. That's Turretin, and it's interesting, you go back and read Turretin, these are the arguments he's giving against, he's refuting the, the semi-Pelagians of his day. And the same arguments, obviously maybe that the semi-Pelagians were putting forth, are the same arguments that the provisionists today are putting forth. Gerhardus Voss. Gerhardus Voss uh, wrote Reform Dogmatics, under his section of effectual calling and regeneration, there's an interesting question 17. So he, it's kind of his personal notes that are put into a, a book form. But then here's question 17. Here's the question. Is not the word of God an instrument by which regeneration is achieved? So here's the question. Isn't the word sufficient? Cannot just the word of God produce regeneration? Isn't the outward call of the gospel, is that not sufficient to bring about this regeneration? And his answer is no. Quote, on the one hand, this would lead us to the Pelagian or semi-Pelagian view, or on the other hand, cause us to revert to the Lutheran idea of an inherent magical capacity for the word of God. So, for the truth to become effective instrumentally for life, I already need to have life in me. Therefore, anyone who has the truth accomplishing regeneration through motivations teaches that man is not entirely dead that is he teaches in a pelagian or semi-pelagian fashion so gerhardus voss is basically saying the same thing if you just say the mere external word of god is sufficient he would say that's pelagian or semi-pelagian following francis turretin following calvin following even arminius in arminians that would say there's more than just the external gospel appeal there has to be an immediate or direct work of grace by the Holy Spirit on the soul of a person who's dead in sin. Okay, what about John Owen, the great Puritan? This is in the works of John Owen, volume 3. The bare letter of the New Testament will no more engenerate faith and obedience in the souls of men than the letter of the Old Testament does so that this day among Jews. The bare letter of the New Testament will not regenerate faith and obedience. There's got to be the external call. Okay, what about Augustus Toplady, famous hymn writer? He preached a sermon in 1770 called A Caveat Against Unsound Doctrine. And this is what he labeled a Pelagian heresy. So let, let's see what he said. He says this, and The main root of the error consists greatly in not distinguishing between the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel. The gospel of grace may be rejected, but the grace of the gospel cannot. God's written message in the scriptures and his verbal message by his ministers may or not may not be listened to. But when God himself comes and takes the heart 
into his own hand when he speaks from heaven to the soul and makes the gospel of grace a channel to convey the grace of the gospel, the business is effectually done. Again, external call can be resisted. It's outward. It's, it's, it needs to be there, but it's not sufficient to enable a response. There has to be the internal grace of effectual calling. B.B. Warfield what does B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, have to say about this? He says, quote, Spiritual grace includes, no doubt, all external help that God gives for salvation, such as the law, the preaching of the gospel, but above all, it includes the help which God gives by His Holy Spirit, working within, not without, by which man is enabled to choose and do what he sees by the teaching of the law and the gospel to be right. Again, internal external call. What about Louis Burkhoff in his great systematic theology? We're getting into the 20th century now. He says, according to this view, the truth as a system of motives presented to the human will by the Holy Spirit is the immediate cause of the change from unholiness to holiness. This theory is quite unsatisfactory. The truth can be a motive to holiness only if loved, while the natural man does not love the truth but hates it. Consequently, and here's what he says, the truth presented externally, cannot be the efficient cause of regeneration. Truth presented externally cannot be the efficient cause of regeneration. What is the efficient cause of regeneration? The internal effectual work of the Spirit, in addition to the outward presentation of truth. Herman Bavink would say this, All humans stand condemned before God, and are dead in sins and trespasses and darkened in their understanding. Why some believe and others do not cannot be explained in terms of human capacities. Simply the preaching of the word by itself is not sufficient. The Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament was poured out at Pentecost to regenerate people, to lead them to confess Jesus as Lord, to bear witness about Christ. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. The preaching of the word by itself is not sufficient. Now, Let's go to some modern, traditional Southern Baptists besides Leighton Flowers. What do they have to say? This comes from Brad Reynolds, and Brad Reynolds is writing in the book called Anyone Can Be Saved. This was put out by the traditionalists. This, this was released in 2016, and this is his um, commentary on the grace of God and anyone can be saved, his article. So Brad Reynolds says this, it seems that God created people with the ability to trust. That ability was not lost in the fall. But that ability was so twisted by the fall that we are now unable to trust in God without the grace of God. He gives this grace to all men, but this grace can be resisted. Through Him and His work we are granted to believe as we are drawn by the Holy Spirit and as we choose to repent and believe in Him. That's just going on the same trajectory of what we saw with Walter Thomas Connor, with Dale Moody, with Emi Mullins, with Herschel Hobbes. It's just a modern-day articulation of that shift in the understanding between just the external call being all that there is, and that external call is sufficient. Steve Lemke from New Orleans Seminary. He writes this, The Holy Spirit convicts and convinces the sinner through enabling or prevenient grace, leading and enabling the person to respond in faith, resulting in regeneration, justification, and salvation. So the Holy Spirit convicts through the outward call, but ultimately you use your libertarian free will 
to choose or to resist. And when you choose, thus you are regenerated. So again, just an articulation of that. So the provisionist, the Spirit's work is limited to the external means of primarily the gospel appeal and the information one needs to understand the claims of the gospel and to admit that you're a sinner. There's no distinction between an external call and an internal call. There's no internal work where the Holy Spirit works to change the mind, heart, will, and emotions through this effectual, supernatural, regenerative grace that's immediate in the sense that it works directly on the heart. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons called Sovereign Grace and Man's Responsibility. He says this, Human nature is depraved, and therefore there must be the extraordinary pressure of the Holy Spirit put upon the heart to lead us to first ask for mercy. (laughs) Only the way Spurgeon can can word that, the extraordinary pressure of the Holy Spirit. So there is a distinction in provisionism, Arminianism, and Calvinism. And if we're going to interact with provisionism rightly represented, we need to understand that they deny an internal gospel effectual call. They call it extra, extra grace. They see the external call of the gospel as supernatural, as spiritual, as necessary, but as sufficient to enable sinners to respond because sinners are not in bondage of the will. Sinners are not totally and morally and spiritually unable to come to faith. The gospel appeal alone can enable a sinner to place their faith in Christ. And when you look at this doctrine... Back the post-reformers, Turretin, and, and, and 16th, 17th, 18th, all the way up to the 20th century, Reformed theologians said that basic view is semi-Pelagianism. You also look at how the Baptist confessions over time through E.Y. Mullins and 20th century theology and SBC life moved from Calvinistic roots to embrace this more provisionistic roots. So you saw the shift from the distinction between an external call and internal call to only now, under the provisionist theology, all that's necessary is the external call of the gospel. So hopefully you've seen this information helpful as you've tried to navigate provisionism rightly represented. Again, I hope I fairly and accurately represented their viewpoint. And so thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments or snide remarks, I'd love to hear them. You can go to seancole.net. You can find all my contact information. I'd love to hear from you. But until next time, will we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Jesus.